Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the latest episode in this LRB Close Readings series about political poems. In these conversations, we'll be taking each time a single poem, one which has been understood and admired or perhaps criticised for its politics or for its particular engagement with contemporary political history. And as ever, we shall be enlightened and informed and entertained by pieces to be found in the rich gathering of essays and reviews and other things that make up the archive of the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry, and I teach English at Balliol College in Oxford, and I'm talking to Mark Ford, poet, critic, and professor of English at University College London. And our poem today, Mark, is one of Auden's most famous poems, I suppose, though a poem of which he became most ashamed, uh, Spain, 1937. Yes, you said in the intro that some of these poems have been criticised and no poem has been criticised more ferociously than Spain by Auden himself. Yes. Um, and he he felt it, it was exactly what he kind of poem he wanted not to write and part of his decision to move to America was to get away from writing poems like this or um, September the 1st, 1939, which he saw as political in a way which was dangerous and famously in his elegy for... Yeats, he says, poetry makes nothing happen. And Spain was a poem which was, in some ways, a, a recruiting poem, recruiting people to join the International Brigade and go to fight in Spain in the Civil War. It's interesting you mention that elegy for Yeats because when he collects this uh, poem in his volume of 1940 called um, Another Time, it's in a little section at the back called uh, Occasional Poems, and the poem that immediately follows it is the elegy for Yeats. So a poem that seems to be all about poetry's ability to um, excite political energy or political commitment is then immediately undercut by the poem that follows it. And I suppose in some of what we're saying, um, we might explore the ways in which maybe that sense of doubt or that sense of, of, of second thoughts about the political efficacy of verse is already present in, in Spain. And, and just to pick up on the Yeats thing, Yeats famously said, did that poem of mine send out certain men the English shot? I'm talking about Kathleen Nahulahan. So the idea that a political poem which acted as a recruiting call or a mobilising uh, cry could end up resulting in the death of its readers was something that that Jordan became terrifically uncomfortable about. And Spain is a, a poem which was kind of published as a pamphlet and, and all the proceeds for it went to a medical aid uh, supporting a Spanish... Uh, what was the charity? Yeah, well, it's called Medical Aid for Spain, is medical what it says. On, uh, but I, I'm sure it was Medical Aid for the Republican side of Spain. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Spain becomes in the 30s, obviously, by... Um, 
1936-1937, the huge kind of rallying cry. Yeah. Um, and Auden goes there in January of 1937, intending to... Um, drive um, an ambulance. Um, people are quite happy that he didn't do that. He was such a terrible driver. It wouldn't have been a, <laughs> much fun for the wounded if he had been driving their ambulance. Uh, it's not entirely clear what he did there, is it? Um, he doesn't really quite know what he's going to do when he goes out there. I mean, he doesn't really want to fight. That seems clear. And and you're right that he, he intends to, to drive an ambulance, but that doesn't seem to be um, agreeable to, uh, to, the, to the people who need to agree. Um, he does, I think, some uh, some broadcasting, and he sends back a couple of bits of journalism to the New Statesman, I think, something like that. Um, but otherwise, I think he's he's rather uh, rather lost. Well, he's there for about two or three months, and then comes back home again. Famously, the thing that he noticed was that all the churches were shut, yeah. and they were desecrated as well. As I think it's fifty seven or fifty eight churches in Barcelona that had been desecrated, and priests were kind of tortured and then killed. And he found the Republican. Um, forces in a state of kind of internal conflict and the, the, what seemed clear cut to him as a as a reader of newspapers in England in in 1936 becomes as described by Orwell, George Orwell in Homage to Catalonia an absolute sort of mess yeah. uh, and chaotic and the sense of what's the right side to be on or the Soviets are involved and there's different kind of anarchists involved the Spanish civil war uh, is it's not clear that it's doomed at that point at all, but um, Auden finds it difficult to make a place for himself within the within the kind of international brigade. Um, but uh, he comes back and in March, uh, or the spring anyway, of, of uh, 1937, he writes this poem, Spain, uh, which is got all the kind of virtuos virtuoso rhetoric which people are familiar with from early Auden, all the startling metaphors. Um, but it's got a much clearer political message in terms of action than one finds in, in most of early Auden. And he came to see it as an outlier or aberrant or and abhorrent as well. Um, mm. But uh, looking back on it nearly sort of, what, 90 years on, um, one can't help but be struck by the sort of wonderful deployment of the Ordenesque to create mm. this kind of panorama of history culminating in this decisive moment uh, of whether or not you should go to Spain. But Spain becomes code for action in some ways or responsibility. And the idea of the just city, which became so important to him, is somehow the portal for it within this poem and perhaps within Auden's own oeuvre is, is this idea of commitment to this cause, the, uh, the fighting against the, uh, obviously an odious dictator. Yes, and, and we should say, um, sh shouldn't we, that, that Auden wasn't peculiar in investing the Spanish Civil War with this kind of epical um, or generational significance. There are lots and lots of people, and, and not just middle-class intellectuals, but lots of working-class people who went off to Spain because they some, somehow saw in the struggle between Franco and the, um, the legitimate Republican government um, something which kind of encapsulated or in some odd way kind of allegorized all the political and ideological strife that was being experienced in Europe more generally. Yes, I mean, Mussolini has been in power for, what, 15 years? Hitler uh, had been um, become chancellor, what, four years earlier? So the fight against fascism, you know, which side are you on? <laughs> which side are you on? Absolutely, yeah. Or as Auden says in one of his poem titles, which side am I supposed to be on? <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, well, it's a it's a very beautifully structured poem. Um, it, it is an extremely fine piece of rhetoric, isn't it? And I think that's what Auden came to most distrust about it. And we mentioned Yeats a couple of times already. Um, I think he he saw that this was the kind of poem that he wrote when he was inspired by the example of Yeats intervening in, you know, big big questions of public policy as Yeats from time to time chose to do and he began to mistrust that uh, very greatly but even if we accept his his mistrust of its of its um, rhetorical power it still has as you say some amazingly wonderful bits of Auden-esque imagination in it and it starts so brilliantly doesn't it so so the poem is structured around imagining what yesterday was like then we then we move on to what the current as it were malaise is that an engagement in Spain might somehow solve. Then we have a brief glimpse of what tomorrow might look like if if the struggle in Spain is successful. And then we end with a call for action. But the wonderful uh, kind of list poetry, which begins the poem, where um, Auden gives us these, these brilliantly kind of random details of what yesterday all the past was like. It really is Auden in... in Full swing, isn't it? It's brilliant. Yes. And the, the poet who seems to me to be influencing it, and you're not surprised to hear me say this, is Thomas Hardy. The, the poet, uh, the dynasts, you know, gives again a kind of enormous vision or panorama of history with like, the spirits of pity and the spirit ironic and so on. But it still is this kind of bird's eye view of history, which Auden so admired in the work of Hardy. And in this poem, he's adopting a similar kind of panoramic bird's eye view of all history leading up uh, to the, the decisive moment of Spain. Yesterday, all the past, the language of size spreading to China along the trade routes, the diffusion of the counting frame and the cromlech. Yesterday, the shadow reckoning in the sunny climates. Shadow reckoning is a sundial, is it, in, in that particular... I suppose it must must be, mustn't it? And it must also, I suppose, be a glimpse of, of um, the colonies, I suppose. Do you think? Uh, the empire comes back a bit later, the construction of railways in the colonial desert. There's a sense in which, you know, this is a kind of story of the progress of the West with all its moral, du- you know, dubiousness. Yes, Uh, Yesterday, the assessment of insurance by cards, the divination of water. Yesterday, the invention of cartwheels and clocks, the taming of horses. Yesterday, the bustling world of the navigators. (laughs) It's got that kind of, it's like an encyclopedia, isn't it? It is. It's like a Borgesian encyclopedia because it's so disorganised, isn't it? The assessment of insurance by cards is nice. And and the the great Auden scholar, Edward Mendelssohn, I mean, the king of all Auden scholars, Edward Mendelssohn, has a note about this in his edition. uh, Maynard Keynes writes to Auden, puzzling about what the assessment of insurance by cards is. And um, uh, Auden writes back to him, apparently, uh, saying, I read in a book somewhere that in the late Middle Ages, the premiums to be paid on insuring cargoes were decided by drawing cards. So it's a piece of absolutely incidental information. But it gets stuck into this brilliantly kind of kaleidoscopic account of uh, what Western history has been like all the way up to the moment of Spain, which is this 
pivoting yes. moment in, in, the, in the history of the West. And, and there are kind of ghastly moments in the history. I mean, there's a nostalgic element to it, as, as there is, I think, in a lot of early Auden, a sense of looking backwards to some kind of lost uh, paradise when things were somehow simpler. But uh, the adoration, adoration of madmen, mm. that can't be a good thing, can it? I mean, presumably that's kind of Roman emperors like Nero or something. Caligula like, or, or something. Caligula, yes, I think, suppose that's think right. they're gods. Um, Although the madman that you get in lullaby is often identified with Mussolini, isn't it? Um, uh, but um, the prayer to the sunset and the adoration of... Uh, but today, the struggle. Yes, we um, get that three times, don't yes. we? But today, the struggle. Um, yesterday, the installation of dynamos and turbines, which is a kind of a lovely allusion, isn't it, to, to the way that the poetry of Auden's generation was often characterised as pylon poetry after, after a poem by Stephen Spender about pylons, that sense of modernity. Yesterday, the classic lecturer on the origin of mankind, which I suppose is liberal education or liberal England or something like that. But all these things have to be put on one side because today the struggle. You're absolutely right, by the way. I completely agree with you about the Hardy influence on this. Um, and um, Auden talks very brilliantly about what he calls Hardy's hawk's vision, his way of looking at life from a very great height. That's what he most liked about Hardy. And absolutely, you can see that there, can't you? Yeah. Well, the helmeted airman, again, is yeah. another of his. This is the aerial view of, of, of history. And it, it's self-conscious about its own kind of brilliance and randomness, isn't it? Um, yeah. Auden trusts his own kind of uh, wacky, whimsical, peculiar way of plucking this and plucking that because it's got this, it's got this kind of driving kind of skeleton of yesterday, 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 today, uh, the struggle. And I suppose it can't help seeming like an agitprop phrase, today the struggle, mm. Some, someone... Um, Selling the socialist worker will will still be shouting that on the streets um, even today. Today, the struggle, um, and it might seem a little bit camp, I suppose, in its wit and a bit unserious to those who did go over and die in the uh, Spanish Civil War, such as Christopher Caldwell, who who wrote a book that, uh, as I understand it, rather influenced the vision of history which these uh, opening. Um, passages present but the the idea of inevitability of progress in in inverted commas the idea of there being some kind of inevitable narrative um, which is unfathomable and impossible to determine but which one must make some kind of accommodation with and therefore take responsibility in relation to what's happening is the the kind of moral and ethical narrative that the poem develops and wraps you up into it. Absolutely. So, so, so I suppose the fundamental guiding idea of the poem, including the structure of the poem between yesterday and today and, and tomorrow, is that history has a shape. So it, it's a kind of a metaphysical Marxist idea, isn't it? That there is not just, history isn't just one thing after another. History actually has a kind of embedded narrative. Mm -hmm. And you can choose to be on the side of history or you can choose to be a bourgeois or whatever it might be and not be on the side of history. And this is recognised by Auden's contemporaries as being one of the things that Auden and his group in various sorts of imaginative, if not particularly kind of strenuously ideological ways, signed up to. 
Um, there's a wonderful poem, which I know you know, by um, William Empson called Just a Smack at Audley, oh, yes. <laughs> which is all about historical inevitability, which uh, Empson, as a good old-fashioned 19th-century liberal, thinks is just a ridiculous... I mean, he's, you know, he's a lefty. He, he, he's not certainly, certainly not against communism in various ways, but he certainly doesn't believe in the metaphysics of, of, of Marxist theory of history. And in Just a Smack at Auden, he writes of, of Auden and his group uh, that they, they believe it has all been filed, boys, History has a trend. Waiting for the end, boys. Waiting, waiting for, for the, the end. end. Absolutely, yes. and and that's exactly the kind of uh, the kind of view of history that is it, that is um, getting into Spain, nineteen thirty-seven, and and what Auden came absolutely to to condemn. And there is a kind of utopian aspect mm. in the after, in the future, in tomorrow, that there's a, a utopian aspect, which isn't present in the poem we discussed in the last episode, Marvell's Horatio Ode, partly because Charles had already been decapitated or and uh, Cromwell had assumed power. So it was dealing with something that had already happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is, this is in 1937, it wasn't clear which way the war was going to go yeah. uh, or the way that history would develop, obviously. And so Auden is in a somewhat uncharacteristic uncharacteristic way, allowing himself to indulge in, in somewhat utopian thinking in his concept of what will happen after the struggle, yeah. when the struggle has been won. Yes, that's right. And, and in, in much later writing, Auden will express his um, great disquiet about the whole idea of utopia um, and say uh, it's much, much better to believe in Arcadia. Uh, which is an ideal, an ideal settlement or an ideal community, but lost in the past, not something for which you might strive in the future, because that will only create bloodshed and, and misery. And already so. has death in it, and it, and, et in Arcadia yes, Ego. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, it's doomed from the start. Yes. Uh, yeah. Very characteristic is, is the almost ecclesiastical kind of liturgical way in which the yes, poem works. It's almost like a preacher up there, isn't there? He's in the, he's in the pulpit. Um, and he was a great diagnostician, wasn't he, Auden? He, he always figured himself as the authoritative uh, commentator on whatever he was talking about. Well, his dad, was a da- his dad was a doctor, don't forget, and he always has a kind of clinician's mindset, at least certainly in the 30s poetry. Wasn't the grandfather a preacher as well, I think? Uh, a Church of England Church- priest. Yeah, so yeah, I think the yeah. priest and the doctor yes, are exactly. fused... Always sounds like a joke. <laughs> <laughs> ...are fused in the, the prophetic Auden... Um, and he does have that, I think that's what arrested his contemporaries, this utter authority with, with which he delivers his pronouncements. You yes. don't argue with them. They are presented as um, a absolutely clinical and inescapable diagnosis of what is happening. And it's up to you to somehow um, cure yourself if he's attacking you, your personal faults, or to participate in some historical event if in a, in a poem like Spain. And of course, he brings in the scientists, doesn't he? Um the investigator peers through his instruments yes. at the inhuman provinces. I mean, no one else would come up with that particular adjective, would they? At the inhuman provinces, the virile bacillus or enormous Jupiter finished. This is a wonderful section of the poem. So this is after the, the description of the past, isn't it? This is now describing the malaise of the present, not in Spain, but back home in England, isn't it? And one of the one of the great kind of imaginative connections that the poem makes is is between what is actually an event in Spanish political history, but somehow utilising, or I suppose if you were being a bit more critical, you could say co-opting what's happening in Spain as a way of describing the psychological or the spiritual malaise of what Auden sees happening in, in England. So the, the poet wants something to come in and, and save him. The investigator peering through his instruments wants something to make, make good the shortcomings in his life. 
the poor in their fireless lodgings dropping the sheets of the evening paper. They, they, want, they appeal towards something called history, the operator, the organiser. And in fact, all the nations together, the nations of Europe, I presume, combine together and um, seek what Auden calls life, invoking the life that shapes the individual belly and orders the private nocturnal terror. So there's this absolutely characteristic Auden-esque thing here, isn't there, where we're a poem that's all about politics, international hard politics, militaristic politics, is also about psychological trouble and about mental disturbance and about having bad dreams. Yes. And somehow it all joins up into well, this master narrative of distress. Well, the, mas- the masterliness is the idea of the authoritative, abil- the ability to develop an authoritative diagnosis. And Spain becomes the symptom of the crisis in you know, liberal bourgeois democracy or whatever as well as in the kind of Jungian terms, in terms of the subconscious or one's ability to lead uh, a just life. So the just city and the just life are both in some ways blocked or thwarted or um, doomed at this particular moment or in crisis. And Spain is developed by Auden into some kind of all-purpose all symptom of it. So if, yeah. if Spain could be cured, then everything could be cured. Yes. Um, and that, again, is a, possibly an aspect of its reading of the... Of, of, of politics, which Auden came to to distrust. Yes, I'm sure that's right. It, it, it is, um, I suppose it's um, almost too obvious to say, it's a very odd version of Marxism. If we yes. think this is a Marxist poem, which lots of his uh, contemporaries uh, seem to do, it is a very odd um, form of Marxism that's at work here. I mean, it, it buys into an idea of historical inev- inevitability, but otherwise the language is entirely, and it's got nothing to do with class struggle or anything, or the dictatorship or the proletariat or anything like that. It is, as you mentioned a moment ago, it, it, it is it is utilising a language of, of, of religion, isn't it? So uh, the nations in the end... Um, are, are engaged in an odd kind of prayer, aren't they? But who Raise... are they praying to? Because they well, want, they want, they're praying um, someone to show them history of the operator. Who yes, are they praying right. to? Well, I suppose that's the tragedy of their plight. There is no one for them to to, to pray to. But there's a nice anecdote. Isherwood and Auden, um, you know, wrote several plays together in the 1930s, and Isherwood. Um, reminiscing about their collaboration, said that one of the main problems he had was to stop Auden making his characters throw themselves down on their knees and start praying, because it's an absolute instinct in Auden to try and get this kind of petitionary sort of you know speech act into into uh, into the things that he was writing. And within three years, is it he joined the Anglican Church? Forty-two. Forty-two is it? Yes. Right. Intervene, say the nations. Oh, descend as a dove which I suppose is the Holy Spirit, or a furious papa, <laughs> which I suppose is a really camp kind of God, <clears throat> or a mild engineer. It must be Jesus. And that's, well, it could be, couldn't it, I suppose, by, in, in, by the logic of the Trinity. <laughs> but it could also be something a little bit more communist, I guess, couldn't it? Because Stalin said that Gorky and other writers of his uh, ilk were engineers of human souls. So it might be something to do with that. But, what, but however you descend, descend seems to be the shape of the 
of the prayer that goes up. But but the, the lines before that suggest an evolutionary reading of history, don't they? In that the, the, the history derives from kind of Darwinian principles. Mm. The city-state of the sponge. Presumably mm. he's talking about the way over millennia sponges have become sponges or the shark, the vast military empires of the shark. It's how the shark kind of patrols its waters and so on. So it's tied in with, a, along with the kind of religious, um, almost, yeah, the religious narrative there is this Darwinian narrative running along. And, and he, what did he study at Oxford? It was... Um... Well, uh, he gets accepted, and in his first year, he studies natural science, so mm-hmm. biology, mostly. Yes. And he studies under Julian Huxley. So he does... I mean, so uh, Darwinian theories of evolution were exactly what his entire curriculum was for the first... And then he opts to do English instead. Yes. Um, I mean, it is odd for such a systematic thinker to combine such kind of contradictory sort of discourses within the same poem and get away with it, I suppose, is the point, <laughs> yes. that it really does work as poetry because it's so arresting and exciting and witty. But also, I think there's a kind of charisma about early autumn, yeah. which I find irresistible. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely would have signed right. up. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been on that boat. I'd been clinging like a bird to an express train to somehow fulfil the prophecy which he's making in the poem. I mean, it's interesting that you, you, you put it in those terms because, as it were, the, the response to the charisma isn't really a response to a rational political argument. Is it? It's a response to something else. And I, I I rather think that what Auden came to most mistrust about this aspect of his earlier poetic voice was exactly that sense of its charm, that it could enchant, that it had this terrible kind of power to, um, or, or potential power to, to uh, influence people in a way which was somehow, you know, not constrained by normal ethical sorts of yeah. uh, consideration. It's the, pro- the Prospero-like magic, isn't it? it which is. he then renounces in The Sea and the Mirror. When, Absolutely. Uh, but the, this is Prospero, you know... Um, in full full throttle, isn't it? Him at his most Prospero-ish and most willing to be kind of a dictator figure or someone who tells people what they should do and organises their lives. Um, and he does so with with this, through, through his, his charisma and through his brilliant use of what, I suppose you could call them vignettes. Mm, They're just yeah. little story after little story and you want to be part of the whole Auden, Auden world. Uh, and it really is a world because like, many great poets like Hardy or Yeats he creates a world and one wants to participate in it Yes. except in a poem like this participating in it does mean doing something at the end <laughs> if you read it in 1937 I don't know did people actually sign up because of it is it known I don't know the answer to that but I absolutely take your point about these little little vignettes I think John Bailey says somewhere that one of the, one of the wonderful effects of, of an Auden uh, an Auden poem is that is that you feel there are little sort of stubs of unwritten short stories that you're encountering and and immediately and as it were unavoidably you 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 begin to speculate about the short story from which this little detail this little detail came and i think that's also quite a hardy-esque yes. sort of phenomenon in a way. and actually the poet stubs of narrative that you get in a lyrical poem poet he didn't he didn't much admire or, or is not on record as admiring who does it all the time is of course walt whitman i mean walt whitman's whole poems are lists and yeah. vignettes yeah. which kind of capture the zeitgeist yeah. in a way that's similar to the way that auden captures the zeitgeist of course this is 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 Auden makes much more use of form uh, that than Whitman does, but the the rolling forward and the utopian vision do have a kind of Whitman esque aspects yes. to it. It seems yes, to me in true. this poem. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So we get that wonderful um, sense of all the people of Europe petitioning a, a, a non-existent God for some kind of atonement or some kind of intervention. And then life answers back for a few stanzas, though it's an extraordinarily attenuated and and weakened kind of life. And you recognize even by the fact that Auden uses the word life, that actually this isn't drawing on a Marxist vocabulary at all. This is drawing on D.H. Lawrence or mm-hmm. Blake or something like that. And elsewhere in his poetry of this period, he will say things like, if we really want to live, we better start at once to try. If we don't, it doesn't matter, but we'd better start to die. And it's that same kind of kind of thing here. So all that life can muster in the in the you know degraded form of the West is um the bar companion, the easily duped, whatever you do. But Spain is a kind of redemptive possibility which calls people. Many have heard it on remote peninsulas, on sleepy plains, in the aberrant fishermen's islands in the corrupt heart of the city. So it's like a narrative of calling. It's a, again, it's a Christian kind of narrative, isn't it, of, 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 of having a, you know, it's like Wesley feeling a burning in his heart or something like that. It's, it's a religious moment rather than something which has come through the, through the serious sort of consideration of political or ideological questions. Or Jesus and the disciples. Yeah. I mean, you know, g- gathering the disciples around him. But I think that the, 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 the Auden which people were so enchanted with is, is the, the, the Auden of the bit, bit you just quoted, which is like the Auden of the nightmare, isn't it? The, the ability to capture an entire country through these striking um, uh, um, panoramic kind of vistas um uh, the remote peninsulas the sleepy plains um why the fisherman is aberrant i don't know <laughs> do, you, do you know it's, a, it's part of an unwritten short story <laughs> um but a brilliant use of, of of nature as well i mean i talked about the we mentioned the darwinian bit like gulls or the seeds of a flower yeah because it becomes it actually naturalizes this this decision to enlist in spain it makes it seem like a, a migrating wildebeest or kind of migrating ducks or whatever um uh, so that these people, they clung like birds, the long expresses that lurch through the unjust uh, lands. They floated over the oceans. They walked the passes, all presented their lives. Yeah. That's a great line, isn't it? it I mean, it, do, it does confer a tremendous amount of dignity as well on those who are making the sacrifice. So while there are a lot of comic elements in the poem, and I think Auden can never go for that long without without being funny, can he? There, there is a kind of prankish humour which someone like F.R. Levis greatly disliked and, and you mentioned the word camp it was slightly homophobic in their attacks which Auden mm. received and this could be seen as not a serious political poem but Auden is one of those poets who can be serious and unserious at the same time and, and it's impossible to sort of adjudicate between the two 
on that arid square, what an amazing description of the Iberian Peninsula that is, isn't it? On that arid square, that fragment nipped off from hot Africa, soldered so crudely to inventive Europe. On that table land, scored by rivers, our fever's menacing shapes are precise and alive. So it is absolutely that point of the poem, isn't it, where the, where the, as it were, the psychological dismay of England and the political reality of a civil war in Spain become identified. So you go to Spain in a funny kind of way to, to meet metaphors of your own unhappiness. Yes, um, and somehow to cure them, I mean, yes. by, by fighting. Um, though, of course, Auden realised before he went that he wouldn't be a good soldier. Um, and um, I think he says that in, in a letter, <laughs> that he wouldn't be a good soldier. But he will go there because he feels a, a kind of responsibility and that he cannot write about things just from the point of view of a liberal bourgeois reading about them in the papers, that he has to somehow experience them. Because he has up to this time led a, not a sheltered life. He's travelled quite a lot in, in Europe. But after this, he goes to um, China with Isherwood and somehow becomes a mu much more kind of political style uh, a poet who's recording in a documentary way uh, disastrous or cataclysmic war events towards yeah in the 30s um, that arid square that, that's almost the first lines of Auden I ever read and I've never forgotten oh. them they are so beautiful in, in the way in which that fragment nipped off from hot Africa it's just so implausible and yet unforgettable so he talks to us about um, Spain in those terms, and then very briefly, just two verses, he gives us a glimpse of what the future might look like. Tomorrow, perhaps, he says, the future. What do you make of, what do you make of his, his little vignette of, of, uh, of, a, of a politically successful future if the battle in Spain goes in the right way, which obviously it, it didn't? The research on fatigue and the movements of packers, the gradual exploring of all the octaves of radiation, tomorrow the enlarging of consciousness by diet and breathing, tomorrow the rediscovery of romantic love, the photographing of ravens, <laughs> all the fun under liberty's masterful shadow, tomorrow the hour of the pageant master and the musician. Well, he means it. He seems like he's guying it. But he also sort of means it. And I think the, 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 the diversity and the eccentricity of it is also in itself an embodiment of freedom. And yes, possibility And uh, uh, weirdness and eccentricity. Um, I mean, consciousness by diet and breathing. Lots of people, our listeners, will do yoga and kind of, you know, <laughs> try and eat carefully. Um, nothing wrong with the rediscovery of romantic love is there. Photographing of ravens, I grant, is, is a niche is a niche activity. It doesn't harmless, I suppose. actually need a kind of utopia to be gratified. But um, yes, I think he, he, he was always loved. He, when he doesn't, when he goes to boarding school, he says, "I like to see the different kinds of boys." Yes, yes. So that sense of different boys having different kind of niche activities or hobbies, and that kind of curiosity and fascination, and the love of of, of, of obsessive passions for particular weird. Um, uh, uh, hobbies um, comes through in this. Um, he's on, on much safer ground there than, than than with tomorrow for the young, the poets exploding like bombs. Mm. One really doesn't want one's poets to explode like bombs uh, in my opinion. I suppose he's using it metaphorically, but bombs have already occurred. And of course there's the um, the inevitable increase in the chances of death, the conscious acceptance of guilt in the fact of murder. That's 
for today. But we ought to mention these lines because they are among the most kind of controversial and George Orwell weighed in on them. Initially, he wrote the necessary... What, what's the the conscience acceptance of guilt in the necessary murder. Mm. So there's the idea of, of necessity, isn't it? Historical inevitability. Um, and it should be said that Auden does entertain that idea a little bit. The first time, uh, in the first days he's in Spain, he sends a piece back to the new statesman where he says that um, he's talking about Valencia, which is a Republican um, city, and uh, he, he writes it up in a kind of extremely positive way um, and says uh, that in Spain, the, the Spain of, his, of, of, of the day, the wish to live, he says, has no possible alternative expression than the power to kill. Mm. So, I, again, I think this is one of the, the pieces that he came to be very ashamed of. But the idea that the only way that you can live, that is to say, be on the right side of history, is to sanction murder or to consider that murder is necessary. Uh, that's what's getting into those lines that then, as you say, he, he slightly mitigates the conscience acceptance of guilt in the fact of murder, which is a slightly different kind of kind of claim, isn't it? Well, he doesn't he write a letter to Monroe Spears in 1960 saying, unless you're a pacifist, this is just telling the truth. If you go to war and kill someone, you are murdering them. Exactly. Mur war is legitimate, is, is legitimised murder of That's other right. people. And um, I, f I find Orwell's uh, critique a little bit specious um, because although he says it, 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 again, it's slightly homophobically tinged, I think, in the way he attacks Auden as somehow being someone who is never there when the trigger is pulled. Um, and he I, he does characterise him as, as somewhat um, not manly in some kind of way. Is, is, that, is that fair? Yes, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. At the same time, I do think that you're, I think you're right, it's slightly unfair, but I do think the Orwell piece is, is a very powerful bit of writing. This is, mm -hmm. this is from his essay called uh, Inside the Whale, Inside the whale called, yeah. isn't it? And, and he talks about these lines. Today, the inevitable increase in the chances of death, the conscience acceptance of guilt in the fact of murder, or the conscience acceptance of guilt in the necessary murder, as the text that Orwell's responding to. Today, the expending of powers on the flat ephemeral pamphlet and the boring meeting. And Orwell says, this is a sort of a thumbnail sketch of a day in the life of a good party man. In the morning, a couple of political murders, a ten minutes interlude to stifle bourgeois remorse, then a hurried luncheon and a busy afternoon and evening chalking walls and distributing leaflets. All very edifying. But notice the phrase necessary murder. It could only be written by a person to whom murder is at most a word. Mr. Brand, Mr. Auden's brand of amoralism is only possible if you are the kind of person who is always somewhere else when the trigger is pulled. So much of left-wing thought is a kind of playing with fire by people who don't even know that fire is hot. I mean, it's really harsh. It is harsh. Um, but there is a there's a there's a, gl a glimmer of, of 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 reasonableness in it. It seems to me that Auden himself later responds to that. Yes. Uh, I mean, his his defence later on is that you should call it murder because it is murder. Mm -hmm. So the fact of murder, mm -hmm. I think, is 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 absolutely a defensible kind of phrase. But maybe Orwell's objection to the idea of the necessary murder, maybe that is a little bit more uh, yes. legitimate. It, yes, I agree. Um, 
which it implies a hit list and uh, yeah. but but it's happening all the time it's happening in Gaza at the moment isn't it you know all these necessary murders so to speak are happening and it, it's appalling but I, it's true it, it's the use of a, a kind of phrase which a Stalinist you know might use um, about liquidating or eliminating their 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 kind of enemies I, um, yes and I think the real the, the real um, issue about it that Auden came to deplore was that he was attributing necessity to a, a kind of capital H history, mm -hmm. that history demanded that these murders were done. So I mentioned Mendelssohn before and his uh, book about early Auden, um, he, he kind of inhabits Auden's view of this poem um, for a few sentences and, and says at one point, he came close to ascribing to history with a capital H, the power to require the murder of its enemies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, I think Mendelssohn absolutely, um, whether that's a fair account of what the poem as a whole is about, is doing I don't know but that's absolutely what Auden came to think about yes uh, but he he felt felt the last lines were the most objectionable yes um, and, let's talk um, about those M Mendelssohn says there's two camps on this there's Auden and there's everyone else <laughs> um, <laughs> history to history to the defeated may say alas but cannot help or pardon yeah. Now, how did Auden interpret those lines when he kind of rejected them? He, he said, this is a wicked doctrine, didn't he? And he did. He said it was to equate um, goodness with success. So if you won, then it meant that history wanted you to win and therefore you were virtuous or, you, you know, you had history on your side. But no one thinks that. There's a, there's a wonderful account by, by Commode um, where he says that, that Auden's reading of it is absolutely wrong that the, that, the, that the last stanza says commode seems to be exactly right heaven and earth leave us to our moment says commode choice is necessary failure is irredeemable the whole of history culminates at this moment we all at times have to make desperate choices and history often favors the bad side you yes know? i mean it, it just um it, it i don't understand his his his, his objection to it though i can see it's no consolation uh, is accurate there and it's remorseless in saying history defeated may say alas uh, that, that we can that, 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 that the losers can write their versions of history um, but that doesn't change anything um, uh, but he, he fixated on these lines and he said he didn't he say he thought that they were he did, did them just for rhetorical effect he never even believed this wicked doctrine that's right he'd done it just for effect that's right and, and if you go around the research libraries of the world you'll find copies of the pamphlet where he's um, mutilated the text so he gives a copy to Cyril Connolly and by those last lines that you that you quoted a moment ago he puts a little arrow and writes in a biro this is a lie um, and there's a copy he gives to William Meredith uh, he writes on it you must throw this away right okay so he, and he gave a copy to his friend gosh. David Luke the German tutor at Christ Church and he says with love from Whiston but a nasty poem <laughs> you know, he never, yes. he never gets over what what looks like um, a, a morally deplorable, in his eyes, like a morally deplorable statement. Because in the previous stands, oddly, we're back in in a very familiar Auden territory with the makeshift consolations, the shared cigarette, yes, a kind of you know almost a, a homoerotic bonding between absolutely uh, the the men which um, who are participating in the struggle, the cards in the candlelit barn, and the scraping concert. The masculine jokes today, the fumbled and unsatisfactory embrace before hurting. Brilliant, isn't it? Yes. Um, it is. One has to admit that it is a terrifically kind of uneven poem 
in in various ways in that in that there are bits of it which do seem particularly in the original version which we haven't been kind of quoting from but there are stanzas which Anthony Hecht for instance in his book um, The Hidden Art sees as deplorable mm-hmm. um, in their implications so but Auden took those stanzas out so it was much revised and I, if our listeners are that interested they can probably dredge up all the different versions mm-hmm. the full version is included in the the, the latest two volume Auden edition yes and the and the early version in a in a in a note at the back so you can you yeah. can do your own compare and contrast between yes. the two yes that's right um, but it is in terms of a political poem it, it is one inspired by a particular occasion and the rhetoric is is intoxicating and it's probably right i suppose for a political poem that urges action for us to find holes in it and for the writer himself to find holes in it because there's no kind of clarity in these mess, mess matters, is it? Yes, it's a mess. No, that's absolutely right. And and I mean, just to end maybe with this point that um, a really fine essay about Auden by Seamus Heaney, which the LRB published, um, in which he talks about Spain and and says, with what is clearly a kind of oblique self-reference to his own experiences or or various sorts of creative dangers that that he thinks he he, he has encountered that uh, what Spain offers us is the spectacle of a poet who connived in what he deplored. If you enjoyed this episode, please do try signing up to the Close Reading subscription, where you'll find our full 12-part series on 19th and 20th century long poems and short stories, the long and short. And lots of other things as well. There's the full series of Medieval Beginnings with Irina Dumitrescu and Mary Wellesley, and Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones. And there are three new series running this year. On Satire with Colin Burrow and Claire Bucknell, Human Conditions with Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra, Brent Hayes-Edwards and Adam Schatz, and a second series of Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones. And even more, you can hear the first series that Mark and I did together on modern and modern-ish poets, and listen to this series on political poems without any annoying ads. So please do give it a go. You can sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or in other podcast apps. Just follow the links in the description. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 